0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Matthew 5, 38 through 48, Jesus says this. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Why are you any different? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, These words that I just spoke here, that we just read, are the words of God and the words of Jesus. Uh, Let's pray in light of that. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We just want to come in reverence to you. Lord, um, recognizing the incredible opportunity we have to hear from the living God. Lord, to be shaped by you, to be spoken to by you. And that's certainly why we are here. It's why we're tuning in. It's why we're connected in this way. Uh, it's for you to speak into our lives. So God, thank you that you use and you can use and you are going to use even technology in this medium to minister to us, and we invite you to do that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me for your glory. We ask for you to speak to all of us in this time. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so this morning, I'm teaching from the title, Radical Response Ability, all right? Having a little pun this morning, I mean fun this morning okay? Um, radical responsibility. I had an accidental pun yesterday. My daughter has been like obsessed with, and my son have got really into fishing lately, and there's this picture with her with a little fish on the end of her line that I posted, and I said to someone, yeah, man, she's hooked. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even mean to be so funny. Anyway, let's move on from the horrible dad jokes and get into our Bible study, okay? Radical response ability. That's what we have Jesus leading us to see here in this passage, um, Jesus talking about our ability, we're going to talk about that too, more so, the idea of our ability, but our ability to respond to things in life in a radical way, in a radical way. Um, now, r- real quick, let's, let's kind of zoom out for a second. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been primarily speaking not so much about responding to things in life, but how we approach things in life. He's been talking not so much about what happens to us, but what we happen to, how we happen to the world as salt and light, how we approach the word of God, the law of God as being fulfilled in Jesus, how we approach anger how we approach lust. Last week it was on that, that topic, approaching sexuality, approaching divorce and our commitments, uh, approaching oaths, you know, how we approach our oaths, all those oaths we be making, all right? Um, that, that's primarily been the focus. Jesus teaching on how we happen to the things in life, on approaching things in life. And here in this passage, as already mentioned, Jesus kind of turns it around now to the focus of how we respond to what happens to us. And I think that really does sum up the Christian life. Uh, The Christian life is both what we happen to, sent out into the world to affect things and change things, but then there's most of the Christian life, which is things that just show up at our doorstep. And how we respond to it is what Jesus is trying to develop in us, I think this is probably the most, one of the most important ways that we can be a witness in the time that we're in. Not just the good that we do, but how many of us know that what the world is often looking at the church to be an example for, or looking at the church to, to do is respond well. H- how do you respond? And this is so important because uh, your response to something, whatever your, your whatever the thing that's coming at you, okay, or whatever the thing that is happening to you. It's often our responses that most realistically reveal where we are really at, all right? You ever had this happen where you uh, maybe had a bad morning, but you had to where you were going, you couldn't bring that bad morning with you. And so you put on a smiley face and you had to kind of carry yourself as though everything were all good. And you, you, you went into the day with that sort of like fake it till you make it mindset. And then something happened to you, okay? Uh, something you didn't expect. You, somebody cuts you off in traffic. You ever been there? Okay. Or, or whatever the case may be, this unexpected incident occurs and then you respond in light of where you're really at. Often the response reveals most realistically who we really are and where we are really at. And that's what Jesus is focusing in on here. But here in this passage, the, the incident that we're going to be responding to that he's talking about, it's not so much circumstantial, it's more relational. In this passage, Jesus gives three dynamics of relational, um, almost incidences That we all will and have and we could even say are responding to on a daily basis. And, And as Jesus disciples us through our response to these different relational dynamics, he gives some radical advice. Now, this is consistent with Jesus, right? I mean, he's the one who a couple of verses ago said, y- if your hand is causing you to sin, you should probably dismember yourself and cut it off, okay? If your eye is causing you to sin because of lust, you should probably self-mutilate and cut out your eye. I mean, Jesus is a radical teacher. Now, we've got to know the difference often between um, what's meant to be literal and just extreme language, but regardless of that delineation, Jesus was clearly... Bringing a radical way of living. And when I talk about the word radical, here's what I mean by it. Certainly the word radical can mean radical. But in this context, we're talking about the standard definition of going far beyond the norm. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, could be summed up in leading us to live and go far above the norm. Uh, doesn't he even say that when he talks about our righteousness going far above the norm of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, that's actually what Jesus came to do isn't it uh, jesus didn't come to give us status quo lives it was the status quo that was separating us from him for, and sending us on a trajectory to be apart from him for all of eternity it, it's the it's it's you know that's the 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 hell, uh, the road to hell is paved with sort of the status quo, with just the norm, going through life, doing what everyone else is doing. And that's not what we needed. We didn't need Jesus to come to give us some more normal. But Jesus came to rescue us from the normal, to give us a radical way of living for and towards eternity that goes beyond the norm. And certainly here in this passage, Jesus is teaching in that vein. He's giving a radical, beyond-the-norm way to respond to our relationships, a a way that would be a a witness to others. But I want to mention this, that uh, I think sometimes the danger with not just Jesus' teaching here, which is very famous teaching, this, this passage here is probably the most famous of the the passages in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking about loving your enemies, talking about the phrase, turn the other cheek, or we read there even going the extra mile. I mean, these are kind of uh, ideas that we've extrapolated from the text. Um, But I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as Christians, as Christ followers, especially to the Sermon on the Mount, is to simply reduce this sermon to radical teaching. You know, I think often that's what we do. We look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, "Oh my, that's that's like radical living. That's like the." And we kind of say, "There's the Christian normal, and then there's like the Jesus radical teaching stuff." And all we ever make it is just sort of these abstract radical ideas that are you know kind of reserved for a few of those crazy Christians who really follow Jesus. And I just want to say that that distinction doesn't exist in Scripture. There's following Jesus. And adopting and giving up your life for his way, which is a radical way, and then there's following someone or something else. There's a line in the sand. And so we got to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is not just meant to be reduced to radical teaching, radical ideas. And here's why, okay? The reason why is because Jesus doesn't just come to give us radical teaching. He's come to empower us by his spirit to live radical lives, See, it's more than just the word of God, it's the spirit of God, which is the game changer to which the word of God is produced in our lives. Uh, I, I want you to see this idea. It's, it's, again, it's the title of my sermon. It's radical responsibility. We have the ability by God's spirit to do more than just look at the sermon on the mountain and go, wow, that's, that's pretty radical. But God wants to actually make us who he's calling us to be. A great description of this is Philippians 2.13. I love this, this hope for the Christian life. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Isn't that awesome? God isn't this absentee landlord, you know, who gives us the, the teaching and the information and the good things to do, and then departs and says, hopefully you can make it. Do your best. May the force be with you. You know, I'll, I'll see you soon. But it's the same God who calls us The same God who calls us is the same God who enables us to actually walk out what he's producing in our lives by his spirit. So I want us to see that as the framework for this passage that is so famous, it's often cherry-picked by non-believers, and it's often reduced to radical teaching by believers, but Jesus here is describing the life that Jesus came to bring. He came to lead humanity beyond the norm into the way of the kingdom. And how does it look in regards to our response to certain relational dynamics? Well, uh, Jesus here in this passage gives three scenarios that we will all walk through relationally. Uh, Three scenarios to which he is calling us and he is enabling us to radically respond. So let's look at the the scenarios and the response that Jesus is is looking to produce in our lives as those who are lights for him and followers of him. The first scenario and response is found there in verses 38 through 41. And the first scenario is this, and, and the first response is this. The idea here first is responding to mistreatment with the response of radical grace. This is what Jesus begins by teaching on. Responding to mistreatment with radical grace. We have all been mistreated in a variety of ways. Even in this just this passage, we'll see Jesus teaching on uh, different kinds of mistreatment. He talks about being insulted, struck on the cheek. Maybe you've been mistreated that way. Someone humiliating you verbally or physically, insulting you shaming you. Uh, We see people being, in this passage, mistreated uh, by uh, those that are trying to cheat them and sue them to take away their very necessities. Ever had that happen to you? Someone just took what was yours or tried to cheat you in some way? Um, Then he talks about being taken advantage of. Someone in a position of power lazily sitting back, maybe you've had this at work before, and making you do all the hard work and sort of dehumanizing you and enslaving you in a sense, um, practically. Uh, these are three examples he gives of mistreatment, but here's the teaching that Jesus is giving surrounding this, it has to do with our response to this mistreatment. He says in verse 38, notice this, you have heard that it was said, in light of mistreatment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. Now, Jesus here is following his consistent teaching style here in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to refer back to the law of Moses, the word of God, often Leviticus, Exodus, or Deuteronomy. And what he's hoping to do is bring greater clarity to what had become confused and corrupted. You had in that culture, you had general assumptions about the word of God rather than true revelations. And so you had in that culture, this assumption about the law of Moses, this, this passage here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, though it is kind of a common expression that we hear today, I think even Gandhi's famous for saying, you know, if, if um, what did he say, if everyone followed an eye for an eye, the world would be blind. I think that's what he, something like that. But, you know, this is a common expression. You have whole movies dedicated to this idea of an eye for an eye, kind of the John Wicks of the day, you know, okay? Um, never seen that before. Um, but you have this idea and this concept in our culture of vengeance and retaliation, but this passage, this expression, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it comes out of the very word of God. It comes out of Israel's history. It's Leviticus chapter 24. It's Exodus chapter 21. It's Deuteronomy chapter 19. Three times in the Torah, you have this law that was established in Israel in order to be a remedy to any kind of injustice, And so, in all three of those places, you see this principle applied for the local government. If someone is wronged, and here's the idea of this in the Torah, if someone is wronged, then there should be, for that person, that criminal who has committed the injustice, there should be punishment Just punishment that fits the crime, right? That's the idea. It's the longing for justice that we all have. We see a lot of conversation about this right now in our nation, uh, about certain crimes that are committed and the lack of justice that is executed. There's a great conversation happening right now about that. And, And that derives from the very heart of God, and we see that in the Torah. Now, God gave that law to Moses and to the people of Israel for a reason, it not only existed to bring proper um, punishment and consequence for crime for the sake of justice, but it existed so that the people wouldn't take justice into their own hands. The the idea was the government would exist to bring controlled justice— so that the people wouldn't run crazy in uncontrolled vengeance. Um, kind of the Hatfield and McCoy's idea, okay? If you're familiar with, with sort of that, that story of our, of our nation's history. I mean, it's a, of two families in our, in, our, in our nation who throughout, we know the story throughout history of what started with just one eye turned into multiple lives that were lost because that's often what happens when we take vengeance into our own hands. Uh, Oftentimes, times uh, when we seek to retaliate for ourselves in an uncontrolled way, we often overreact when someone wrongs me. So it's usually uh, two eyes for an eye, you know, two tooths tooths, okay, for a tooth, okay? We often overreact in pain, okay? And if you need any example of this, uh, if you, you need kind of the argument proven, I just want to invite you to come spend a week at my house, all right? And just actually hang out with my kids for a week. Brittany and I will go on vacation, okay? And, and you'll see it. You'll see this natural instinct to bring this overreaction when I'm wrong to overreact in my Pain and to retaliate and bring vengeance, and so I want you to think about it this way. So this law, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that was given to, um, uh, that was given to Israel, which Romans thirteen says is actually given to local governments today. That's a whole other conversation about unjust legal systems and and how God uses Romans thirteen talks about that God uses local governments as ministers of His judgment. That's a whole other conversation, but that idea of God doing that and setting that up for justice was not just to bring justice, but I want you to understand it this way: it was to help de-escalate what could have what could bring more violence. It's genius. Violence begets violence, begets violence, begets violence, and greater violence. And so you have God giving Israel this tool to bring justice, controlled justice, rather than uncontrolled vengeance and to de-escalate, okay? We, we get the idea here at this point, preventing the Hatfield and McCoy's. In Jesus' day, Israel had, or I should say, the, each individual in Israel had become their own government and their own court of law judge and jury, And so what was meant to be a principle of love and justice and protection had become the exact opposite of what it was intended for. It had become a principle of personal vengeance and retaliation. So Jesus says in in, in that day, you have heard it said that if your neighbor steals from you, you should steal from them. It's kind of what has been misunderstood. But Jesus says, no, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But notice what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. This principle, uh, this law principle for Israel had become a kind of manipulated and used for modern vengeance. And and Jesus says there's a purpose for that. I love that he affirms it. He doesn't remove the fact that there's evil. Jesus doesn't circumvent injustice. He, He acknowledges the place for it, but the place for it is not in my own hands is what he's saying. So when evil shows up at your door in the form of mistreatment, Jesus says first what not to do, what not to do. He says here's what you don't do. He says don't resist an evil person. Now that word resist that he uses there is really hard to translate into the English language. Um, but the idea of resist is to set oneself against someone or something. The idea there is that of of uh, war and battle, okay? So um, for example, The scriptures talk about how we shouldn't resist the Holy Spirit. All right? That's a great, I think, mental picture. We shouldn't resist the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't set ourselves against the Holy Spirit. The scriptures also say that we should resist who? Satan, the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We should set ourselves in battle position against the enemy. But he says here, Jesus says, but we should not resist an evil person. When you are mistreated, the first thing Jesus says not to do is retaliate. That's what he's saying here. Now, this is, as I mentioned with my children, this is our natural instinct, isn't it? You ever been cut off in traffic? Okay. You ever been wrong? You ever been cheated? And in our own forms of justice, okay, um, I recently have, have experienced a couple different uh, personal um, uh, incidences of being mistreated, kind of out of the blue. Had to do with some, pro- some stuff in my house, some stuff it has to do with my neighbors. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about loving our neighbors here in a second. Um, but I, I want to tell you what, what's, what's so interesting is how natural it is. My, this natural st- kind of like headline starts to go. And whenever I'm wrong, I immediately am going, how can I fix this? Right? How can I get? How can I make right what was wrong? And Jesus says, "No, no, no, stop! Don't set yourself as an opponent against someone who mistreats you. This is radical in that culture. What?" And he goes on to give it three examples of mistreatment, and he doesn't just tell us here what not to do, but he tells us what to do. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Don't hit back give them your other cheek. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give them your cloak also. If someone wants to compel you to go a mile, in that culture, a Roman soldier was legally permitted. A Jewish citizen was legally obligated if a Roman soldier needed them to carry their equipment. A Jew had to drop what they were doing and they were required to carry it up to a mile. No more. Okay, But that was the requirement in that culture. So if someone compels you to go a mile, they mistreat you. Maybe they were just being lazy and they said, I don't want to carry this. I'll use my power to get this person to carry the heavy weight for me. And yeah, the big difference between a good boss and a servant leader, of course. But if you're being mistreated, Jesus says, don't resist that person and say, I ain't carrying your stuff. He says, take it an extra mile. Here's what's interesting. Jesus isn't saying, don't overreact when you're mistreated. He's saying, overreact the right way. Overreact with grace. Whoa. Holy cow. Okay, there, there needs to be an overreaction. What there can't be is no reaction. Okay, That's not what Jesus is getting at here. This is really important to mention this. Jesus is not talking about being apathetic. He's not talking about ignoring. He calls evil, evil. But how I respond to the mistreatment in the way of Jesus is I respond with the overreaction of radical grace. I want you to look at this all throughout scripture. We see this, this principle that's given, Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. Having regard for good things in the sight of all men. Repay no one evil for evil. Look at First Peter. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Notice this wrong verse. Here it is. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. On the contrary. Don't just overreact. It's not just don't overreact and hit them, but overreact and love them. What? On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may receive a blessing. What not to do? Retaliate. What to do? respond with radical grace. Now this is some interesting context, these examples that Jesus gives, it can sort of seem like uh, Jesus is excusing evil. Uh, But but there's real culture and background to this. Let's start with the first example of turning the other cheek, which is probably the most taken out of context verse in all the Bible, okay? With, With any of these examples, whether it be someone insulting you, or it be someone um, cheating you and suing you, trying to take your basic needs away, or someone taking advantage of you. With any of these examples, in our culture, I would say that we tend to have one of two ways to respond to that. The the two responses are, are either fight or flight. If someone strikes me on my cheek, one way to respond to that is to backhand them back, okay? give them a taste of their own medicine, so to speak. Another way to respond to that is, is to run away. You strike me on the cheek. I don't want to get hit again. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Or you cheat me. Well, you sueing suing me. I'm going to sue you back. I'm going to double down. I'm going to lawyer up. Okay? Or you're taking advantage of me and you're throwing that pack on me. I'm going to destroy your property. I'm going to fight back. Or instead of fight, flight. I'm going to run. Now, Those are the two general ways that our culture would know to respond to any sort of mistreatment, fight back or run away. And and here's what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus enters in and he gives a third way. And in the way of Jesus, we're neither fighting back nor running away from evil. It's, it's um, It's not this sort of uncontrolled defensiveness, nor is it cowardice. He says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, now this is an interesting idea. The idea there is slapping you on the right cheek, and, and uh, that was in this culture, this, the idea there would be if most people are right-handed, okay? So this had to be a backhand, right? Russ, come up here for a second, bro. I got to use you, man. I, okay, no, it's fine, okay. Russ is like, you're not going to hit me. But you get the idea, right? All right? It's like, the idea is if you were to hit someone on the right cheek in a right-handed culture, you wouldn't be like this okay, (laughs) you know, or like come up from behind them, all right, the idea is a backhand, and that's, that represented the highest form of insult, there were even legal fines for backhanding someone. Um, Think of Jesus himself in John chapter 18, when he is taken prisoner uh, by the Roman soldiers, and he is backhanded by the high priest's servant, it's not about physical abuse. I want you to understand this. This is one of the, so, such a misunderstood passage. So is Jesus telling me that when someone physically attacks me, I'm not supposed to defend myself? It's like, no. No, he doesn't, doesn't say that. Uh, this is not about physical attack. This is about emotional and, and even public shame is what this is about. In fact, there, I wanna just mention, there's many places in scripture where you see Jesus evading the crowds that were trying to physically attack him, okay? Uh, that's a good thing to do, preserving uh, your life, okay? Um, that, that's not what is being said here. That the background here is that to be backhanded, it's one of the highest forms of insult. So what do you do when someone publicly insults you and mistreats you? Here's the way of Jesus. You don't run away. You, after they backhand you on their right cheek, you bring them your other cheek, you, listen, you show them grace in not hitting back, but you maintain your dignity by looking them in the eye. And now you're actually giving them an open cheek, your left cheek, to punch with their right hand. And now you're saying, Are you going to do it again? Are you actually going to. Isn't it interesting, this way of Jesus? Yet at the same time, you are saying, You're, you're not letting them take your cheek, you're giving them your cheek. It's gracious. I'm not going to hit your cheek and take yours. I'm going to give you my other one. Or or I'm not going to let you take my stuff. I'm going to give you my cloak. Isn't it amazing the way of grace, how it restores human dignity at the same time? I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. I'm going to go the extra mile. So now it's not you forcing me to go one mile. It's me deciding to go two miles. And there's many times in life where we can be tested with this. I remember working my own little retail job, I won't say where it was, and having so many opportunities while I was being mistreated as sort of the newest employee doing the hardest work. Man, there's, there's such an opportunity in those scenarios to go the extra mile, not for the sake of the employer, but for the sake of the glory of Christ. And it just does something. It just does something. What does that look like with where you're at right now? Where are you being weighed down with responsibility that is way beyond your capacity? What would it look like for you to go the extra mile in the form of that mistreatment to adopt the radical way of grace that goes further even than you're being asked unto the Lord? And that's the only true motivation for this. Nonetheless, Jesus is describing how we are as followers of his to respond to mistreatment. We respond to mistreatment with radical grace. Radical, it's above the norm. Uh, Oftentimes the normal way to respond to insult is to insult back. When you're struck, it's to strike back. Uh, A great example of this is Facebook, okay? Where most backhanded slaps are happening these days. And if they said that about me, well I'm gonna say this about them. I'm gonna smear them for smearing me. The radical way of Jesus. Secondly, it's kind of a unique one here, Uh, and it's sort of it's in the same passage, but you're going to see it's a distinct scenario. Jesus then talks about the scenario of encountering someone who has needs, and and it's it's in the same vein of just giving graciously and radically. Like I'm not going to let you take my cheek; I'm going to give you my cheek. I'm not going to let you take my clothes; I'm going to give you my cloak which I would even have to be sleeping with tonight. I'm going to give you that, my outer garment. I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. I'm going to give you my strength. And in the spirit of giving, Jesus says this, verse 42. He says, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I love that this verse, I love that Jesus will teach like this. Like it's kind of hard to craft sermons around sometimes because it's like, here's what the topic's about, and then Jesus is like, let's talk about giving to people in need, you know? But Jesus is just from his heart, as he's talking about giving and living a life that is spent on in the service of love to others, even those who are mistreating you, he says speaking of living in the service of love towards other, what about those that come to you in need? Now, here's the next thing we're thinking about. Not just how do I respond to mistreatment, but how do I respond? How do you and I, genuinely, let's think about this. How do I respond when someone needs something? Now, that's a loaded uh, question, and those circumstances are often complex and nuanced. But just generally here, what Jesus is talking about here is not a principle for Christians to take advantage of. You know, like Russ got a new truck, and it's like, you know what? Jesus says, give to him who asks of you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not throw it. Rust, scripture obligates you to let me borrow your truck for this year. All right, that, obviously, that's not the idea here, okay? Uh, what'd you say? Take it for two. He said, take it for two. He said, I could take it for two years, going the extra mile. That's awesome. You couldn't hear him say that, but I got you. Um, that's hilarious. All right. Uh, the idea here is encountering someone in need. The, the the language there of not turning them away, it speaks of someone who's actually destitute and in trouble. Uh, think of the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Someone on the side of the road in need, and they, they, God has put you in their path and them in yours for you to be, um, uh, to be aware of the need, that's often where it starts. The Holy Spirit, We should, by, by the way, we should pray this every single day. God, open up my eyes to see the needs around me that you see that I don't. Help me not just go into my day focused on what I need, what I have to do, but help me live as you live, Jesus. Others-centered so that there's never an interruption, there's always divine appointment. Because I'm going aware of the fact that there's good works prepared for me today to walk in. And there's gonna be people I'm gonna come across. And God, you have blessed me with the means to be a blessing to them. And Jesus talks about how we are to respond to those needs. Isn't this interesting? How do we respond to those needs when they show up at our door? And the spirit in which Jesus leads us is with radical generosity. Radical generosity. If anyone asks you, or if anyone needs to borrow from you, how loose of a grip do you have on your material possessions? that there's a willingness to be used by God to bless people? Or how tight of a grip do you have on your material possessions, on your wealth, on your bank account, on your checkbook? How tight of a grip do you have on your blessings, by the way? Every good gift and perfect gift comes from above. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. What have you been given by God that you are hoarding to yourself? And the idea here to get us to think about is, is, is do I have a heart of generosity? What generosity looks like is this. It's hands that are always open to receive and always open to give and serve. The opposite of generosity, which is greed, is closed hands. And here's the thing about closed hands. When you have closed hands, uh, you can keep what you're holding, but you can't receive what God wants to give you. But with generous hands, with a heart of, of that, that it recognizes everything I have, I've been entrusted with, I am free to receive, and I'm free to experience the blessing, which it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus talks about how do I respond to needs, um, and obviously, the way that we can, can be motivated to respond this way is to look at our salvation, to look at how free and generous God was, and not just giving us a little bit of love here, but in demonstrating his love and giving his son. God didn't save us like this. He saved us like this. He was willing for his own son to die in our place. Jesus himself didn't hold on to his life. He gave his life for you and me that's generous, and that generosity propels me to be generous, Um, that's the spirit that Jesus is speaking about here, having a loose grip, recognizing all that I have is a gift from God, and so I don't want to turn anyone away, I want to have the heart of Jesus that's that of compassion, I'm gonna respond with radical generosity, there's not much else to say about that point, that's really the heart there, Uh, The last thing that Jesus says, and this is where we'll close, is in the next section, verses 43 through 48, Jesus speaks about responding to our enemies, our opponents, and the way that we are to respond to them is with radical love. The first is just kind of encountering evil and mistreatment. That could just be a regular thing, but what about someone who's mistreating you on a daily basis? How do you respond to your enemies? Um, Jesus says this. He says, You've heard it said when it comes to how you handle your enemies. Jesus says, Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Just kidding. <laughs> he didn't say that. Right. That's not what he says about your enemies. That's a common euphemism, okay? Here's what Jesus has to say about your opponents in life, whatever they may look like. He says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor. Amen, yes, right? That's straight out of the law, straight out of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, this is true. You've heard that said. Jesus was asked in Mark chapter 12, what are the two greatest commandments? He said, the first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor, but unfortunately, you've also heard it said people added a little uh, addition to this little asterisk there, and hate your enemy. Notice love your neighbor is in italics, because it's the word of God, and notice hate your enemy is not. This is man's addition, man's, um, you know, sort of, it's like we're helping God, you know. Lord, you forgot something. You said love your neighbor, you forgot the part, we're helping you out, let's finish it, and hate your enemy. And that's genuinely the spirit of the culture. Now, were people saying this? He says it, that's what you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I think mostly Jesus was probably seeing this, seeing this in Roman-occupied Israel. I love my neighbor, but I hate my enemy. I love the Jew, but I hate the Samaritan. I love the Jew, but I hate the Gentile. And what had happened in Israel and what is still happening today is um, humans were and are creating these categories of who deserves my love and who doesn't. Uh, And so remember Jesus when he's approached by this this religious man and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus talks about the commandments and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, And the man responds and he says, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, okay? He's not saying like how close do they have to live to become my neighbor. He's saying who is actually the person I'm called to love? And then Jesus tells this incredible parable about someone who in that culture, a Samaritan and Jew, they wouldn't be considered neighbors, they would be considered enemies. And it's a story of the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan who serves and loves what would be culturally his enemy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Uh, It was the great Ravi Zacharias who interpreted this text by, by saying that when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus says, it's the one to whom you are neighborly. And the idea there is we tend to create these categories, these distinctions. We have sort of these stipulations between who is my neighbor and who is my enemy. I know God says to love my neighbor, but you know that person? They are my enemy. And Jesus says, okay, if you're going to do that, I say to you, love your enemies. You've heard it said, "Love your neighbor." These people that you think you're 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 called to love, and then you have your enemies, those that that are outside of the neighbor category. Jesus, I say to you, love everyone. Love radically. Love even your opponents. Don't just love the people who agree with you politically, but love the people who are on the opposite end of you politically. Whoa, those aren't my neighbors. I don't, I don't interact with those people. I don't talk to those people. Love them. Now, I mean, I even think about this practically. Like, we all have neighbors. There's nothing like neighbors, okay? Um, and in my life right now, I would say, I'll say this, I'll get a little transparent with you. When it comes to my neighbors and loving my neighbors and some of them who may be my enemies, um, God knows. Um, I would say, like, seven, out of 70% of my neighbors, I would say that I am maybe 70 to 75. Like, if you took my house and you did, like, do, like, a circle, like, 10 houses around me, I'd say about 70% of my neighbors and I are on good, I would say great terms, like friendship level, like we hang out, I know their names, even most of them, I know their last names, okay? Um, You know, like, hey, we watch each other's out for each other, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, I would say maybe 25% I'm neutral with, like... Not because I don't want to be their friend, but they don't want to be my friend. They probably found out I'm a pastor or something, but um, that happens a lot. And so they kind of do the thing where they walk their dog with their head down, or like they're on their phone. And I'm like, I can see that your screen's black. Okay, there's nothing on your your phone's dead. Okay, um, or they just I don't know they don't like my kids or something. I, you know, um, my kids are great, but maybe they're, these people aren't. Um, so, and then there's like. There's 5%, which is one person in my neighborhood right now, one of my neighbors, if you do the math, who I would say I, I have a bit of an enemy. I have, I've, been, I've been having some issues with one of my neighbors and unsolicited issues. Um, at least that's what I'm saying. Um, they wouldn't agree with that. But, um, and I'm like, this happens this week. And Jesus is like, I want you to teach on loving your neighbor and your enemies what do you do when your neighbor is your enemy you know <laughs> and I, I, I was just, just being honest I've, I've been having an issue with one of my neighbors who's just not very friendly and and is not receiving any forms of our love that we're seeking to give them or, or no kindness and is really going out of their way to um uh, contact the city of Boca and complain about us and our construction but um Andrew does not have within himself the capacity to do what Jesus is saying here. My natural tendency is to ignore them. My natural tendency, and, and, or at least tolerate them, right? Like, if Jesus said that, I think I'd be good, okay? Just don't go out of your way to retaliate or hate them. Be like, okay, I guess I can do that. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says those people who, now, you're thinking a lot about me, but think about yourself right now. Those political enemies, those religious enemies, whatever it may be, those um, domestic enemies, you know, people in your family that you struggle with, those people that are your opponents in life, here's how you're to approach them and respond to them. He says, look at what love looks like here. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. The word bless there is not materially, it's verbally. It's the, the idea there is speak blessing over them. Out of the bunch of the heart, the mouth speaks. And usually when someone's wronged me, what, what wants to come out of my mouth is not blessing but cursing. I wanna say curse words to them. I want to curse them. I wanna speak because I desire bad for them because they may be done bad for me, but Jesus says, no, desire good for them. And let that desire spe- come out in, in how you speak. So I've been thinking about this. Like A good thing for me would be like how do... Like, how do my kids hear me talking about my neighbor? Um, What does your social media, how are you communicating on social media? What does that look like you're speaking about your neighbor? Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. The idea there is go out of your way to serve them and do good for them. Um, What would it look like for me, what would it look like for me to go out of my way to, to, to do good to this neighbor? What would it look like for you to go out of your way to do good to someone who's positioned as your enemy? Um, notice this. I, I would say this is the most practical and helpful one. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I'm not, I, I'd be victimizing myself too much to say that this neighbor's spitefully using me and persecuting me, okay? Okay. Um, but what Jesus says here is, is true across the board. This, this principle of praying for them, going out of your way to pray for them. and they, These aren't like Davidic uh, prayers of vengeance. Lord, get them, you know. Lord, render to them according to their works. Yes, so what is it, the psalm? Smash their teeth in their mouth, Lord. You know, like, that's how David prays for a lot of his enemies, right? But then the greater than David, Jesus comes on the scene, he's on the cross. And his prayer is, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're my enemy, but you love them, so I- I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray. And can I tell you what prayer does? This ha- this happens all the time in-, in my life. You ever notice how, without prayer, you can sort of draw conclusions about people? Um, it's amazing how, like, without prayer, everyone's just your enemy. But when you start praying for someone, you start to see them not just as an enemy, but maybe as a victim to something." Like maybe they weren't always that way. Like maybe the reason why this person is so rotten and nasty is not just because they're my enemy and ew, okay? But maybe they have had people be really rotten and nasty to them and they're really far from God. And this is the reason why they act the way they act. They do what they do. So instead of responding in anger, I can respond as a Christian with understanding. I can know that without Jesus, I'd be the same way. In fact, sometimes I am. So I'm gonna pray for them. When I pray for them, I have a renewed perspective of what's really going on in their lives. It's not a wrestle against flesh and blood. There, and here, Now I get to be a minister to them. I get to ser- I'm ministering to them in prayer. Even if they, even if they don't receive my ministry in person, I'll, I'm gonna keep ministering to them in prayer. And what God will slowly do through prayer, have you had this happen? Pray for that enemy and watch God change your heart towards them. Okay? Don't feel your way into right doing. Pray your way into right feeling. Just watch as God changes your heart towards them. Now, here's where we close all of this today. In doing this, notice what Jesus says. And I I would attach not just loving your enemies to this, but the whole context. In responding to mistreatment with radical grace, when you're mistreated, to not retaliate, but but, but, but to give that to the Lord, to let controlled justice handle it and let it go, to respond to needs with radical generosity. That's what he calls us to next. And then lastly, to respond to our enemies with radical love. Jesus says we should do this. Notice this, why? Verse 45, here's why. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Uh, It's Ephesians chapter 5, Verse one, it says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Live in this way of love so that people look on and they see that you resemble your heavenly Father, that you've been so impacted by his love that you're able to love those around you, even your enemies, even your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that people might look on and go, you look just like God. Can I tell you? Because, listen, God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies. Who? You and me. In fact, look at what it says. Here's an example of how God loves his enemies. He will, look at this, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. The sun, the idea here is it's a blessing when it's not in South Florida. Okay. But his sun rises on the evil and the good. The sun, which brings light and health and vitamin D and all the other amazing things it does in nature, okay? It, it, it rises on the, on the evil. God brings the blessing of sunlight, the goodness of his love, his creative love in, in the sun. It comes to all. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He pours out blessing through rain on the, on the just and on the unjust. He's not respective there. He's just gracious and loving to even those who don't deserve it. Mostly to those to the, who don't deserve it. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Anybody can lo- it's, it's easy. Anybody can love people who love them. In fact, I love loving people that love me. Love those who love you. But don't even non-believers do that? Like Anybody can do that. That doesn't make us, that doesn't make us different. I'm so loving. Really? Why? Because I love everyone that loves me. That's not loving. That's just, being, that's just being normal. But radical, above the norm, looks like loving people who don't love you. And if you greet your brethren, what do you have more than those? Man, I, my, my guys, what's up, brother? I greet my brothers. I love to approach them and embrace and love. But, but anybody can do that, non-believers. That doesn't make you distinctly Christian. What makes you distinctly Christian is that you love your enemies. You greet even your, your enemy. Instead of repaying evil for evil, you feed your enemy if they're hungry. You bless them if they're in need because you. You there are, therefore will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Is what Jesus ends with. You'll look like God the Father. This is what God is like. And I wanna say that this is the motivating factor in our ability to live radically this way. It's our, it's our responsibility, but it's our radical responsibility which comes from the radical ability that God supplies, displayed, can I say this, in his radical love, okay? The way that God is towards his enemies, the way that God is towards us is above and beyond the norm. It's Romans 5 where we close out. Romans 5 says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Man, what is the, the, the motivator? What is the, the, the tool through which God changes our hearts and transforms our lives to become people who, are gracious towards those who mistreat us, who are generous towards those who need from us, and who are loving to those who are enemies of us. What is the thing that produces that in our lives? It's encountering the love of a God that was not dependent on my deserving of it, but was in spite of me not deserving it, was in spite of even me becoming God's enemy. I was God's enemy. Colossians says that we were, we were reconciled to God through being, we, before that we were enemies according to our wicked, our wicked works. Yet God did good for us. He spoke blessing over us. And his love, it's the kind of love that makes enemies his friends. He converts his enemies to becoming those that love him back when they first encounter his love. And this is the only true source of that love coming through us. It's letting it fill us first. We love him and we love others because he first loved us. And let me say this, it's a radical kind of love. The way that Jesus, and I want you to just receive this right now, maybe what's keeping you from this is just you don't believe it, man. Maybe, maybe what you've done is you've projected upon God your own responses to sin. And because you respond this way, God must respond that way to your sinfulness. But here's what the gospel displays. In Jesus going to the cross, giving up his life, taking upon himself your and my sin, going into the grave, defeating death, bringing us, inviting us all to salvation, what that displays is that God responds to our sin, not with his anger, not with his retaliation, but with his love. That's how God responds. It's radical. It's above the norm. But when we are so impacted by this love, we are able to live radical lives and live out that love to those around us. So let us meditate on this love. Let us reflect on this God together in worship.